All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You got Michael's one and two, Vance, and we've dropped the dead weight. So it's just three of us this week. I'm just kidding, Yano. I love you, buddy. That was an eat that for. <laughs> He's holding down the fort. Do you guys send people down there or do you, do you feel tempted to go to these things yourself? We're usually at these things. We, we sent a couple of our people there, but East Denver's a, a, a fan favorite. It's a classic. Um, in, in the last one before the pandemic, I think it was literally held in like a parking garage that was like astroturfed. It's just like a great builder conference, but could make it this year, hopefully next year. It's a vibe. I heard there were 30,000 people registered. Pretty nuts. And and from what I hear just on Twitter, the vibe is very positive. There's a lot of people interested in ZK. There's a lot of people interested in L2s, DeFi, games. You know, it, it's just great when you go to those conferences and you just get a re, renewed sense of, of vigor in the industry and, and just like the sense that, you know, it's not just you and 15 people on crypto Twitter. It's 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 actually a real industry. <laughs> it's like actual people doing this. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the biggest one for us, I don't know if you agree with this, Vance, but the biggest one, the one that we had the first experience of that feeling was DevCon, I think. <laughs> no, this is in 2019, before we knew you, Mike. <clears throat> uh, DevCon, I, I think it was six in Osaka, uh, where you literally had like 5,000 people all talking about Ethereum, all talking about DeFi, all the different announcements that were happening. And then you've got Vitalik and like 20 of the core devs with these massive Japanese dancers and drums on stage and like, it was it, it was one of those where you're like, I don't know what I just saw, but it was definitely interesting, and I feel like there's something happening here. Well, the big news of the week is that, uh, fellas, we're going bankless. We are going, going bankless. Unwillingly bankless. <laughs> Not the way we thought it was going to go, but here we are. Um, no, we're talking about, uh, let's talk about Silvergate, because that's actually relatively big news. So, I mean, the, the title of the story is that Silvergate was due to file its 10K on Wednesday, so we're recording this Thursday, the day after, and they said that they have failed to file. So shares are down, I think at the time of recording, it's down about 45%. Turns out Wall Street doesn't love it when you don't file your 10K. Um, just to like give a history, I think we've talked about Silvergate a little bit on this show, but Silvergate, you know, they were a traditional bank, right? Kind of like a local regional, like a local regional bank. Um, and then they started getting into crypto around circa, I think like 2014, 2015. They, a couple things to know, like, First, over time, the their depositors, I think as of end of 2022, it's like 90% crypto firms, right? So that obviously creates a little bit of a risk uh, from a deposit standpoint. The other thing to know about Silvergate is that they've built out very impactful and highly used uh, infrastructure, especially in the exchange side of things. They have something called the Send Network, and that's how all of these kind of market makers and exchanges all talk to each other in after hours trading, and they can uh, send and deposit uh you know, US dollars. So, you know, it's been kind of widely reported on that they struggled near the end of last year. They had an enormous kind of bank run, which they processed by selling uh, their debt securities, which is they're basically holding all those deposits in treasuries. In it, almost any year, that would be totally fine. The problem was it was like the worst year for bonds in a couple hundred years in the US. So I think the Wall Street Journal, they reported that they lost about 718 
million. Um, and apparently it's just getting worse this year. So, uh, and then I guess the last bit of news to note there is that there have been a couple tweets, uh, you know, Coinbase uh, basically tweeted that they were no longer doing business with, with Silvergate and it's looking pretty bleak, at least as of today. I'm not sure. What do you guys think? It's kind of like the classic bank run scenario where just the trust is broken down and, and people are now pulling deposits. They're cutting relationships. They're curtailing whatever activities they have ongoing with, with Silvergate. And Silvergate is primarily the main transaction bank for crypto. What that means is that when you actually uh, withdraw money um, from Coinbase, they're actually sending it to your bank account from Silvergate. Um, and now Signature is going to be that player. And you know, Silvergate's a, a smaller bank. Um, they're, as of today, a $300 million market cap bank. Signature is about six and a half or seven billion right now. And so, like, the amount of concentration risk that they had within their crypto depositor section was gigantic. And, you know, this is the risk of, of, of that type of concentration risk. The other thing that we've, we've looked at, and, you know, this is not like the fixed income group of framework speaking. This is like Michael and I, who don't have a ton of experience in looking at banks, just like reading the tea leaves on what we're seeing. You know, it looks like they took all of their crypto deposits, put it in, you know, pretty long duration credit, and then got worked on that once rates rise. And Arthur Hayes put out a tweet today that said, really, all you needed to do was take USD deposits from crypto firms, buy super short duration, or at least like mixed duration credit, and then, you know, not get blown up or have to be a forced seller when rates rise, uh, just because you have a little bit more duration diversity in your book. That does not appear to be what they did. It appears to be the exact opposite, where they just took massive concentration risk and very long dated stuff and then got blown out. So I don't know actually how mechanically an insolvency of a bank like Silvergate would work. I don't even know if they're there yet. And they haven't issued a going concern warning yet. They issued a warning that they might issue a warning of being a going concern but it's certainly not looking great. The thing that Vance just mentioned was the thing that I was going to double click into, which is they didn't file their 10K, uh, which is their annual report. They paused and they said that they would be filing it shortly, but it has something in it that they are concerned about the potential for going concern in the next 12 months, which means that <clears throat> they need to be able to work out some of the risk factors. They need to the, work out some of the disclosures. They need to basically spend time with lawyers and bankers to say, what is actually something that we can reasonably put forward and, and sign our names on the dotted line to say, these are the reasonable risks. These are the reasonable disclosures that we have to make to all potential shareholders. And and so the, the market is reacting to that. <clears throat> As Van said, it's down you know whatever percent today. I haven't checked it in a few hours, but it was down 30% after hours yesterday. Um, Broadly speaking, though, you know, the, it, it will be interesting to see, like, do they actually have issues with drawing? Do they actually have issues with, you know, liquidity? Um, there is a difference between something getting oversold and an actual insolvency. Uh, it's not like the bank is, you know, Luna and it's propping up its customer deposits with its equity. Like that, that doesn't necessarily, that, that's not how banks work, uh, regulated banks, that is. Um, so there, there is something to that. Uh, it's just a question of how much, how much loss can they take before you know they they become truly underwater. Um, so that that's kind of like the big question mark. I would say that needs to be resolved. I don't really know how this works either, but you know this is Silvergate has been. I think actually going into Tuesday or Wednesday, it was the most shorted stock uh, in the U.S. It was like eighty-one percent of its shares were sold short. And there's something when there's some kind of rule where if, if the auditor is sort of presented with 
I forget, there's a very specific kind of legal term for what it is, then they have to investigate. So Elizabeth Warren has kind of specifically singled out Silvergate. Mark Cahotes, you know, I've seen him on, on Twitter kind of giving interviews. He's a pretty well-known short seller. Um, is a lot of concern. I mean, I, I'm with you in the sense that it's very far cry from Luna, but not filing a 10K is definitely, there's probably cause for legitimate concern there. Elizabeth Warren put out a letter today about this. You know, like she's calling this out directly. Um, and, you know, the at least the the thought is that there's a lot of people who have, as you said, 81% short interest, a financial interest in this thing going down. Um, so I, I I don't know where the where the buck stops or like where this thing ends, but I do think that there are a lot of incentivized parties on both sides here. Two other things I think are, are important. So MicroStrategy is a large counterparty of Silvergate. And they put out a tweet today that says, we have a loan from Silvergate not due until Q1 2025. There are market concerns, RE Silvergate. For anyone wondering, the loan wouldn't accelerate because of SI insolvency or bankruptcy. Our BTC collateral is in custody with Silvergate. So it's not like they have a bunch of, um, they definitely have a lot of credit exposure to the industry, but the industry doesn't really have a ton of collateral exposure to Silvergate. It does have implications where it's going to be harder to withdraw money, maybe harder to do create redeem with, with things like USDC, but... This is not like a, a death spiral scenario for really anyone other than Silvergate if they have gotten blown out as bad as you know some people are saying. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other one that I was watching a few weeks ago is you had this weird uh, motley crew of characters getting on both sides of Silvergate. You had Brendan Bloomer as a, I think, like a 9% shareholder. You had Block One as a 9% shareholder. And then you had like Citadel and BlackRock. Citadel. And yeah. Yeah. And you had like, you know, a couple other of the big boys. Um, and there's certain rules about owning shares of a bank where if you cross seven and a half percent or something like that, like you like, I don't know the exact regulations. I'm paraphrasing here, but like you might also become a bank in terms of your reporting requirements. And that's like not fun for anybody. So it's not like you can have like block one double or triple their ownership. Like you're kind of capped on, on in terms of like the offensive side of Silvergate. On like the other side of Silvergate, you had George Soros and his fund shorting it. And so you had kind of like these two camps lining up against each other. And this was when Silvergate was at like 15. It's uh, It was just weird to see that. You don't really ever see that, um, especially with TradFi people taking stances in crypto. It, it was interesting, but it looks so far like the Soros side is, is winning. You know, to address kind of the, you know, to maybe like stand up for Silvergate a little bit here. I, you know, I, I also read that Arthur Hayes tweet. Generally, when I see people like kind of making those tweets from the cheap seats, it's like, okay, dude, you know, you, you weren't actually in a position to run that bank. Like there was probably a really good reason why that was the case, you know, um, but thanks for the input. So I, that was kind of my reaction to that, to be honest. Uh, I, I also think my, my read on Silvergate, I, this is totally an anecdote. So take us for what it's worth, but I've interacted with that team pretty frequently. They always came off as pretty professional and like they knew what they were doing. And like to your, you know, to your point, Vance, about these sort of people kind of lining up and, and then taking individual sides. I mean, sometimes, you know, uh, companies are the casualty of these powerful shareholders who have these own weird battles, right? And definitely Silvergate, I think is, they probably made some mistakes, but I think they're getting caught up in something that's a little bit bigger than themselves. The, the last point I want to make about this is Silvergate is one of those companies where you guys have probably heard this a lot in crypto. Uh, we invest in picks and shovels businesses, right? And those are supposed to be less risky than the underlying assets they're based off. Go take a look at where Silvergate has landed relative to its all-time high, and then go look at how 
Bitcoin and ETH have done from their all-time highs. It's just, that's just not how it works. It's not how it plays out. It's like that that whole picks and shovels. Oh yeah, like the regulated businesses of crypto. Those are like catnip to like growth investors and Silicon Valley people. And like, just take a step back and think about the lived experience of those investors over the past 12 months where they were like, yeah, crypto's coming, but we're going to regulate it and we're going to be the good guys. And then like fast forward 12 months, it's like, you invested in DCG, you invested in FTX, you invested in Silvergate, you invested in even, frankly, Coinbase. Like, all of these things have just gotten completely worked versus ETH and Bitcoin, which are honestly not doing that bad relative. So it, it's unfortunate, like, and ETH and Bitcoin aren't bad, but like all of the incentives now are for the traditional VCs not to allocate to these regulated plays and for everyone else to go, go the exact opposite direction, offshore, decentralized, you know, and decentralized is good and bad, but... That's the way the winds are blowing at the moment. The the other, like the, we've kind of talked about like this broadly is being called like operation choke point, at least by people in crypto. There was also kind of rumblings from Signature. So there was an announcement from Kraken that they were going to be limiting transactions of certain sizes from, uh, from Signature. And Signature and Silvergate are two very systemically important banks for crypto. They're kind of these smaller banks that really leaned in and offered banking services to like the exchanges and the funds and kind of the cap, the CFI infrastructure that powers a lot of crypto or regulated crypto based out of the US. And that's coming under a significant duress, which probably poses a lot of real challenges for for big companies in, in crypto. I'd just be curious, how much of a, a worry is this overall for the industry? And then I guess, yeah, I mean, Vance, you were just saying this kind of pushes people out. That is the incentive for founders and companies, right? Why, why would you want a domicile in the United States right now, given this given this environment? I think there's two things. There, there's creating the on-ramps and off-ramps and having that be something that is a stable and re- reliable solution. Silvergate has been one. I mean, with their SEN network, that was, uh, or the Silvergate Exchange Network, that, that was something that, you know, was probably the most widely used rails to move money around in the crypto space, um, even though it wasn't even crypto rails. Um Signature has been probably the number two in terms of notoriety of which banks support crypto. And and there's only probably one or two, maybe three others other than that, that will take you on as a as a customer, as a client, if you have anything related to, to crypto and, and what you're doing. Um, anecdotally, I've heard of a couple of friends, you know, one who was starting a, a new fund, one who um, is working on a new project, and they're having a difficult time getting banking, banking services. And it's not going to be impossible, but it's just taking a really long time. It's unclear as to you know who they have to talk to, the the KYC partner, the you know, the, the different hoops and ladders that they have to go through to get this bank account, just so that they can put the money that has already been you know committed to them, so that they can pay people salaries. Like the 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 operation choke point, I think. I don't think that it's a concerted effort, and and I think it's really you know coincidental that all of this is happening at the same time. Uh, but I do think that, you know, it is, it is serious. If we lose the rails, I don't think we're going to lose the rails in totality. We may lose access to certain rails, but I think there's just going to be others that are going to step in and fill that gap. And I can't remember if it was the OCC or if it was the fed who put out a note, um, maybe a week or two ago, as all of this was happening, there was sort of a rumor that operation choke point was happening. I, I think it was the fed who said it's not illegal to bank crypto companies, you know, like crypto companies are fine. And it's uh, up to the same standards of KYC and anti-money laundering, Bank Secrecy Act violations. Like those are the things that they care about. You know, we, we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
uh, and you know these are not two in the same. So I, I think that there is a movement to not cut off an entire industry from the banking industry, and there's a desire to not let that happen. There just has to be clarity. And frankly, I think this is you know one of those things that I think most more than likely will blow over eventually. Uh, but it will be something that you know drags for a bit, but it, it's not going to kill anything. I, I would I would agree with that too. I think it's just, uh, and you know, to to sort of take the perspective of an outsider, I can I can see the perspective of well, what did you guys expect? You know, we definitely have some sins to atone for as an industry. It sucks. I mean, SBF was definitely the. This is probably blowback from from SBF. I can only speak anecdote. I went to, down to DC two times, and the first time I went down was right after SBF, and everyone was kind of, oh, you know, this happens, and we know that fraud happens, and this doesn't necessarily reflect on the industry. Then I went down a second time and it was kind of like, actually, we're a little pissed. <laughs> it was, was sort of the vibe. So, you know, this is just, this is sort of the natural way that things go. And there's always going to be some blowback and this too shall pass, I think is the way I think about it. Ultimately, I think it's for the better. Like this still is a huge prize to bank this industry, to be the bank of stablecoin creation redemption, to be the bank that does the internet work transfers. Um, I think this stuff is like, you know, getting exposed to like a cold every once in a while just make, makes your immune system stronger. You, that's kind of what you need. You don't really want to get hit with like something out of the blue and not be able to handle it at scale. Like, do I think Silvergate Bank was the banking partner of the future for crypto? Honestly, probably not. I'm hoping that like JP Morgan, Bank of America, you know, one of the large retail depository institutions steps up. Um, Signature Bank is frankly like a step in the right direction. It's 20 times the size. It doesn't have the same customer concentration risk. Frankly, it probably has better management. So, you know, I can see the silver lining. Um, this is like a year of a lot of silver linings. Like, yes, there, there's a huge, dark, ominous fucking cloud. But like, look, like there's a rainbow behind that. And you have to squid to see it. It might not actually be there. But like, you know, you have to take it for what it's worth. One of the, one of the things we keep on saying internally, but also with portfolio companies is like, this is a year of bend, don't break. You know, it's going to be a tough year. There's going to be a lot of shit that we have to deal with, but... We're not going to break and we're just going to continue forward. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think the toughest part about Silvergate is that they had a bald CEO. So suddenly that just doesn't work <laughs> as an indicator anymore. That like, whole thesis. What it's else can we trust? Yeah. Guys with hair. It's the year of air. Year of air, my friends. Uh, <laughs> Do you framework see? is poised. Look, look at what's going on <laughs> The <there>. lettuce. <laughs> Good Lord. Oh boy. Oh boy. All right. Let's, uh, let's move past this. I, I, I want to talk about, this was kind of a cool story. Uh, and I'm doing a little bit of a shilling our own book because Blockworks broke it, but, uh, there was a counter exploit on, uh, the wormhole situation. So basically the, the background is, is that, uh, I mean, wormhole was, was hacked, um, a while ago for, for a pretty large number and jump kind of stepped in and, and backstopped it. Uh, one of our analysts, uh, Dan Smith, so credit to Dan, was just as one does, just analyzing uh, Raps Raps Thief transfers. Uh, noticed a huge, tra <laughs> as, as one does on a on like a Friday night. He was doing this at like three a.m. Uh, with a psycho, uh, but he noticed a two hundred twenty million dollar transfer, which is obviously a, a gigantic outlier. Um, and there's a, there's a whole he kind of traced everything out how they actually did this. It was very clever, um, and it's frankly beyond my uh, my five year old brain. So we'll link the the free report of how it actually happened in in the show notes. But it was kind of a sophisticated counter exploit that was that was leveraged on something called Oasis DAO. Um, and after this all came out, Oasis announced that they received, quote, an order from the High Court of England and Wales to take all necessary steps that would result in the retrieval of certain assets involved 
with the wallet address associated with a wormhole exploit. So part of this was some pretty sophisticated financial engineering and know-how from the jump team, but there was definitely a legal back channel that was involved as well. And Oasis basically said, hey, we had to comply, essentially. So there are a couple takes from from the more idealistic uh, corners of DeFi, which was, hey, this is a betrayal of the promise of DeFi. I'd be curious just what you guys thought about the whole exploit and then if, if that rings true at all. Oasis and MakerDAO are not the same thing. And not to get too into the details here, but like when you do a Maker Vault, you are putting up ETH, you are drawing DAI. Um, it's totally permissionless. No one can take your position, alter it. Um, that's one thing. Oasis is entirely another. Oasis in the US actually used to have a broker-dealer license way back in the day. People, uh, I either forgot about this or didn't know about it, but like that's a centralized company. And the UI that Oasis offers you if you're going to open a Maker Vault is, you know, you open it through them and it is through a different smart contract, but you have all these different bugs and uh, bells and whistles that you can put on the contract itself. Do you want to multiply your leverage? Do you want to add a trailing stop loss? Do you want to, you know, have a, like an auto liquidation price that's arbitrary? Like you can do all of that different stuff. And what's funny is that I think that the thing that caused the uh, Oasis contract to be able to be exploited um, on whoever stole the ETH's behalf was the fact that they used a trailing stop loss when they were trying to lever up a wrapped ETH position. And, you know, what's the moral of the story there? You know, pros don't use hedges, I think is the first one. Um, the second one is just like... It, that's it framework compliance approved. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. that's not true. Don't, not financial <laughs> advice, being sarcastic. But... The fact that they used a centralized intermediary to put these additional things on their smart contract was eventually their undoing. And I don't think anybody ever made the promise of crypto not, you know, extending to centralized institutions. Like that's not the thing that we're going after here. And so I wasn't surprised. I do hear the pushback from everybody on crypto Twitter about how this was, you know, not a good thing generally, but what else were they supposed to do? Like if your thing is not permissionless, there really isn't much you can do if a court orders you to do it. Right. And and just to be clear, I think the the hack wasn't I, I don't know if it was necessarily a hack. I think it was more of a an open exploit that existed actually for a while where there was the ability to upgrade the contracts and in the process of upgrading you could change or retrieve assets um <clears throat> with the admin key in particular. So you were basically putting your trust in Oasis, uh, the centralized wrapper on top of the maker protocol. And and just to like hammer this point home, there are a lot of instances where you've got centralized intermediaries that sit on top of decentralized protocols. And, and I fr frankly think like that is the future of what DeFi ultimately looks like. But don't think that just because you're using something that happens to look and feel like Web3, it's completely decentralized to the point of not being upgradable, not being exploitable, not being redeemable, whatever it may be. Um, and so I think this is a good lesson for all users of DeFi. Obviously, the victory laps of you know the the people on Twitter that are claiming you know this this is exactly why DeFi isn't DeFi, um, whatever. Uh, but but frankly, I think um, this is good because now we can actually have some retribution for a, a really large hack that happened, and um, I think we can close the loop on whether or not these Oasis uh, contracts are are upgradable or not. I think they they cut that capability, so you know it's it's a one time situation for them and you know nothing really is you know that much different other than 
the person who stole a bunch of money got the money stolen back. So people rooting for North Korea are just idiots, in my opinion. Like, oh, how could you? Like, DeFi is supposed to be uncensorable. It's like, yes, this was a one-time exploit and we took money away from North Korea. I don't see it being bad necessarily. I don't know. Yeah, was the wormhole hack officially Lazarus? I'm just assuming anything over like there's so few people that are sophisticated enough to do this. I like the the thing that was funny was like they started levering up. <laughs> That's what they used the maker vault for. They started levering up and buying more ETH. At that point I was like, "Oh, maybe maybe they're not so bad." But it's like, no. Like we we can't let them do that. Like we should have some sort of checks and balances in the system even if it has to go to a court. Unless they bought like a ton of ETH, then it would be. <laughs> then, then we would have something to talk about, of course. No, obviously, supreme uh, leader. yeah, supreme, supreme leader. He doesn't have a butthole. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Adam's watching this like, oh god. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you. I there has to be. I mean, this is. I, I do think I've heard Nick Carter say this, and I kind of agree with it. We're 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 in the span of time right now where all these systems are being battle tested and we're trying to get a sense of like, where does decentralization really need to be? And, and what are just, I get that it's really good from an ideological standpoint for it to have all of it be completely uncensorable and unseasonable, but I don't know, we live in a society, you know? So where's like the pragmatic, like, where does this really, where do those lines really fall? So I think that's all going to get tested and we can opine on it, but probably the market and governments and society is just going to, come to a consensus on what they find is an acceptable compromise. Small tangent. Have you heard about some of the these rules around renters' rights in cities? Is oh, this... this is... <laughs> no. But I heard it's horrible in California. Oh, it's pretty funny. Like, literally, a renter can take your, your apartment that you may own and you're renting out hostage if they've been there for a certain amount of time, refuse to pay rent, and then, de- and then declare that you need to pay them to leave. And there's nothing that anybody can do. San Francisco is built different, man. It's, it's a whole other ball game out here. Actually, this was this is an LA story uh, of a friend who has a house and it has two condos in it, and literally one of them is being seized by the tenant. <laughs> what is the Steelman case though for why it's a good idea that that tenant law exists? I'm sure there's some kind of rationale. Why does that exist like that? There's uh, there's all these like I mean it it only got worse with COVID, but like there's all these um, like owner move in and like. Um, all of the like evic- like safe eviction rules that exist. I-, I know in San Francisco, there's those. And I think in most cities in California, there's some derivation of that where like, <clears throat> if you are the owner of an apartment, you're only allowed to kick somebody out if you move in and stay there for five years. And if you are found out to not be living there for less than five years, like the, the previous tenant can sue you. Like <laughs> there's just like all these, you know, it's supposed to protect people who have been there for a long time and, and you know, they they don't have any ability to move and uh, maybe the prices have gone up and they're locked into these rates because there's, you know, there there's uh, rent control um, on certain buildings. Ultimately, for anybody who's taken a basic economics class, you realize that these are inefficiencies in the market and they ultimately have deterious effects on the entire housing market, depending on which way they're built. So... <laughs> obviously not a fan. I, I can maybe understand why someone put that in at one point for like human protection and like social value, but uh, the free market is the free market and it says otherwise. It's like these people don't believe in capitalism. What a shame. 
You know what? Honestly, I said this joke, but I think there is a growing portion of people out there, especially Gen Z, that straight up does not uh, subscribe to capitalism. They're just like, nope, opting out of that. But yeah, the the ones that uh, have lived at home until they went to college and then just graduated, those ones. Cuba is really close. If you want to try the alternative, <laughs> I can get you there fast. I'm just saying, scoreboard for capitalism looks pretty good compared to the alternatives. Is what I would float out there, but. Who knows? Let's just blame it on the boomers. That's that's much easier. Let's uh let's uh you know at risk of going outside of the bounds of our podcast here, let's talk about Cosmos. Uh, they're ditching uh, ICS. Um, so basically, the this was reported a little while ago. So basically, Cosmos needs a native stablecoin. They had one in the form of UST, RIP. That is no longer the case. Um, there are a couple other uh, kind of alternatives that have been suggested, but basically, Circle announced in September of last year that USDC would launch natively. Um, and then we got a little bit more detail that there was going to be a general asset issuance chain called Noble. And that is was going to be distributed through the hub. So the hub has, frankly, it has a little bit of an identity crisis, but it does a couple things. Uh, it's kind of like a, a router for for messaging in between these, these protocols. But also there's, with the advent of Atom 2.0, there's this sort of shared security model where the hub can kind of rent out their validator set to commercial chains. And that's what this was going to be. But now that is that is no longer the case. They're going to launch as a standalone proof of authority chain uh, instead of utilizing security from the hub. So I'm curious what you guys what you guys think about this. I just honestly feel like Cosmos has missed its window. ETH roll apps are, are scaling. They're getting user traction. They have stable coins. Um, it, the fact that this is launching as a POA chain, Noble is, versus using ICS like a huge hit to the value accrual of, of the chain itself. But I don't know, like for, for me at least, I don't know what Michael thinks, like Cosmos oftentimes feels like the purest form of, of like the PVP meme, where it's like, you know, instead of everyone having their own decks, now everyone has their own chain and there's like $5 of liquidity and it's like the same 10 people passing like $1 back and forth trying to make it into $2. It, it just doesn't feel like it has the activation energy required to really make it a thing. And maybe that changes with UIDX, um, but I don't know, DYDX is, is even less of a, like the whole DYDX value prop used to be, <clears throat> it's on Starkware. It's super fast. It's the only place you can trade perps. And that was true. Just like the latency of the other chains was not low enough where you could have an Oracle updating to run a perps exchange on anywhere else. But now that isn't the case. The L2s are fast enough. They're cheap enough. Um, so I would be surprised if it had a resurgence. Frankly, I'm, I'm just like not that big of a fan. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, I generally agree with all that. I, I would say, I don't know if they've missed their window or if they've just been like hamstrung by like Terra blowing up. Like they, they had their stablecoin. But, you know, the, the thing that matters most for an ecosystem, especially when you're developing anything that's going to have financial primitives or DeFi or even like value transfer, you got to have a native stablecoin. And if you don't have that, there's really no form of application. I think that's super interesting. Uh, the second that you have to bridge, it's going to become too cumbersome for user adoption. Um, the second that you like have to trust in um, you know another entity to be able to have something that you can really feel you can get access to. I mean, we're talking about the choke points of banks right now for USDC and, and particularly USDC on on ETH. You know what happens if you, there's there's choke points that break on getting your your stable coins from one network to the other. 
Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that there's just a lot of trust that you have to put in that, especially for something that doesn't have the Alindi effect as everything else has and has been building for the last couple of years. Um, that being said, you know, if Noble can develop uh, a sustainable, you know, I, I'm guessing that Circle would just put USDC into Cosmos via Noble chain. Um, if they can develop that trusted relationship, you know, maybe that's a good opportunity for Noble and, and you can kind of speed run the opportunity knowing that you're going to have the exact same playbook as USDC on any other network. Um, it will, I think, be interesting to say, okay, let's say DYDX is going to use this USDC. Like, are are they going to use it? Are they going to have to, you know, have a bunch of different others on there? Like, is it going to be another stablecoin wars, you know, playing out in real time, just in a new ecosystem? I feel like the the more harm and the more competition you have going into, you know, the the rollout of this this uh, this new ecosystem is uh, the noble ecosystem is that, frankly, you just have to have something win and win big quickly. Uh, to catch up to everybody else, I will take the other side of this a little bit. Uh, I because I like I like the the people in Cosmos ecosystem, and I think they think about things in like a fundamentally different way. So the way that I would distinguish kind of what's going on in Ethereum land and the challenges and problems that they're really interested in solving versus what's going on in Cosmos land is Cosmos has from day one been like extremely honed in on kind of like the application layer, right? Like they solve a lot of problems from the perspective of like kind of app developers, whereas Ethereum, I think, is very concerned with kind of like the modular kind of scaling infrastructure, like uh, data availability, uh, validity proofs, all that kind of stuff, right? And like they got like the ZK kind of um, came from from Ethereum land. But I think the they're just very focused on solving a different set of problems. I think if they could get, you're right, the, the native stable coin, the ability to take out leverage, like there's a lot of really cool innovation going on over there. Um, the hub just needs to figure out what they're doing. They're lack, they lack the value accrual. That's the, I think the challenge, the, I think it's something that can be cruel, overcome, but yeah, that's the, the challenge. So the value, the value accrual is a major component of it as well. But the, the thing that, you know, and Vance kind of mentioned this, but I'll, I'll just, I'll say it again. Uh, the narrative of basically app chains that are built around IBC and the Cosmos ecosystem and, and the tech stack that is Cosmos are being speed run, sped run right now by supernets and subnets, where you've got the same level of scale, you've got the same opportunity, you've got very business development heavy ecosystems in Polygon and Avalanche, and they're trying to create EVM compatible uh, ecosystems that also have the same scalability and native bridging that you would see if you were a, a Cosmos app, app chain. So I, like there, there is sort of an area, there, there is an opening and there's a window. I'm not saying it's closed. We definitely, you know, have investments in the Cosmos ecosystem, not saying that it's over by any way, shape or, or, or form, but it is something where the competitors are catching up. I think that the, la the last thing that I just want to get your kind of uh, take on before we move here is just because it was kind of a central idea to the, the whole app chain thesis part of this season of Bell Curve is one, uh, I think, advantage that you have if you're if your validator set um, understands the semantics of the application. And that I think is just a, I'm not sure how you bridge that gap for something like Ethereum where there's validators for generalized block space. And then even in this model, there'll be first it's a single sequencer, then it's a decentralized sequencer set, but it's not gonna understand the semantics of the different applications that, that run on top of that. So it allows you a little bit more flexibility from a product standpoint, or what do you think? L3s. Mm. 
I mean, yeah. L3s, roll apps, whatever you want to call them. Like I kind of kind of that's kind of what I mean when I say like supernets and subnets. These are going to become application specific ecosystems or application specific networks. And <clears throat> I, I bet you see, you know, like a SMB game ecosystem. And that's just going to be like all the fast casual games, you know, with the same basic use cases and the same basic um, interactions with the L2 or the L1, whatever it may be. I'm, I'm guessing it's L2. Um, that supernet, that subnet will be specific for that ecosystem. You also may see like, a single game that has its own subnet or supernet. And and so I think you're going to see the bifurcation there, but I, I think these subnets and supernets, just like the Cosmos app chains are going to be application or application ecosystems specific. Well, I guess, well, honestly, like I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a supporter of, of both boats here rooting for everyone. I, I mean, I do think that the OP stack and, and bait. Oh, one thing I, um, I had a couple conversations about uh, base in general, because I want to get a sense of if developers are interested in that, because, it's kind of like there's a bunch of users that might use it, but there, it's also could be like a corporate chain. Apparently, the developers are super excited about it. They're like, yeah, there's 108 million potential users and they're excited to build stuff on base. I think it was such a win for Coinbase. I'm so happy for them. I think they nailed it. So I'm very, I'm stoked for them. Would you be as excited if they built a Cosmos chain? Yeah. Hmm. I think I would. I would Don't be, drink. yeah. I would be, <laughs> dude. I would be. Don't I go on? I I would I think it would, I think it would be very. I'm sure they probably thought about that. And I actually think it's a it's a probably a relevant question to ask why they didn't. Um, so you know, it's a fair question. I mean, I, I think the other thing, just to tap into a little bit more of what you were saying, I think we're going to see a shift back to people realizing that they have to have sustainable businesses, so they're going to go where the users are. They're not going to have this like, oh, like the users are coming, the developers are coming, like we're going to have this tool that serves five people. No, it's like we need something that serves an immediate population, an immediate market now. Otherwise, we're not going to be around in a year or 18 months when we need to do our next fundraise. And and so I think it's not really just like, a, oh, are people excited about it? It's like, oh, this is maybe the only way that I can continue forward. And I think that that's it's a narrative that we've been talking about kind of here or there over the last six, nine, 12 months, but it's definitely becoming more real now. I think a lot of the investing arguments in crypto are supply-based, which is probably comes from like the Bitcoin 21 million hard cap narrative. But I think demand-based uh, arguments for investment are always a little bit more compelling, probably. Speaking of our friends over in, in Bitcoin land, uh, what do you guys think about, did you see Yuga Labs announce something? Um, they have their own native uh bitcoin nfts um there's also stacks there's like signs of life from uh, i was waiting waiting, what do you guys think waiting for you to bring up this general topic (laughs) you guys have a spicy take no no i think ordinals are cool i think it's i do too doing things other than just being like a culture of being against everything being for something is cool um it's a lot different. There's a difference between like being able to kind of crudely transcribe something into a, a blockchain versus having like the apps, the DeFi, the user base, the culture of like trading and making these things cultural. So I think that's the next step that it's going to be interesting to see them take. And it's cool to see Udi and like Nick be like reinvigorated with purpose versus kind of like just like there's only going to be 21 million of these things. I don't I don't know how 
much people care about the 21 million side of things anymore honestly listen not to uh to toot own horns once again but i i did predict that in 2023 we would start to have a discussion around what the future of bitcoin looks like and i think that this is in one form a discussion because you're putting something out you're forcing people to make decisions you're forcing miners to make decisions which is going to be the biggest component and to vance's point there's nothing really that's changed fundamentally about Bitcoin yet. You're, you're sort of just using this in like a end around way to like prove that there's something that could happen. But I think it'll force conversations around maybe this is something that we should natively support. Like, could we made it natively support this? Should we natively support this? Like the, the fact that there's going to be conversation around this could make it something that's viable and real. Right now, it's, it's truly just a toy. Uh, but eventually it could, it could be something real, I think. I have a very hard time understanding how decisions are made within Bitcoin. I don't understand what the governance structures look like. And I, under, I understand the stakeholders. I know who those, I know who those are. I know there's the, the devs and the miners and the validators, but I don't really get how decisions really get pushed forward and who's kind of in control. Oh, it's, re- it's really obvious. Satoshi comes back every 10 years and he writes all of his commandments down on, you know, Sanskrit and, and, you know, we deliver them to the code base. It, I mean, it like, Ethereum I heard, has the, are, it, Ethereum is the EIP process, which is like social consensus, which is like clients integrating it, which is obviously the developer community being behind it. But like, just to be transparent, like, there isn't really like a A, B, C, D, E, F, G process. Like you try to push it through all core devs calls. It usually fails. You have to try again. You have to rally people. Like there is no token governance of Ethereum either. Bitcoin is more crude than that, but it's not entirely, entirely different, just to be honest. Yeah, I used to, when it it comes to Bitcoin, I used to really resist these comparisons to like the Catholic church and some new form of religion, but it really does uh, fit that that metaphor in a lot of ways or that analogy in a lot of ways. I mean, there's like the commandments that you were just joking about, Michael. They hate the apostates, right? The people that turned, right? Like, just look at all the hate that Nick Carter gets on on Twitter now. And they hate him more because he used to be one of them. And it is this, just this like religious fervor. And there are these people that are like worshipped at the mount. It's a little frustrating because I, I want to root for it. I mean, I'm more bullish on Bitcoin than you guys. Like, I, I want to root for it. And the bull case for Bitcoin is like, would you short the Catholic Church? Like, look at what those guys did. They had an, they had an amazing run. Like, look at them. Uh, so, but I, I wish it was more than that because I feel like it could be more than that. But I, I, I don't know. W- listen, you, you may be relatively more bullish on Bitcoin than we are, but that doesn't mean that we're not bullish on Bitcoin or that, you know, we don't think that there, there's future potential for it to really change and do something different. I, I, I'm just excited to see that there's an, at least an opening of the conversation. All right, guys, I think the last thing that I kind of wanted to get your take on was this Immutable X uh, times Unity SDK announcement. So you spent a little bit of time talking about uh, kind of like what an app application uh, SDK would look like. And I think that's still kind of being built. Can you guys just, again, just give a little bit of a refresher? Like, what is an SDK? And like, what is this announcement? How is it significant? Yeah, um, I mean, an SDK is truly just a software development kit. So it can mean tons of different things. Usually when you're developing something that's consumer facing or, or like a game, for instance, uh, you're going to have a bunch of software and a bunch of libraries and a bunch of integrations into other tools or services or infrastructure. And an SDK is just like an interface to be able to do that. So if you need to you know, interface with AWS, like 
if you need to interface with Unity, um, they've got an SDK. If you need to, it, like, there, there's just a, a common way of communicating, and that's what the SDK really represents. So, <clears throat> what this in particular is uh, is immutable, and I, I, it's it's funny you put immutable as like the one that announced this. There's actually like ten more that were a part of this announcement. Immutable, immutable flow, Solana, Avalanche. Uh, there were a ton of them. It's just that I think Immutable loves to uh, loves to ring the marketing bell more than more than most. Um, and really, what this means is uh, they were they were put into what's called the Unity App Store. <clears throat> and so, what what it really means is anybody who wants to build on Immutable, you're sort of like a verified vendor within the Unity Store. Um, which means that you, if you're a game that's building on Immutable, for instance, or or Flow, or any of these other chains, you now have a direct plugin that's like a verified developer with Unity. Um, so I think it's a big move. I, I think, frankly, like the biggest component of this is just Unity's recognition that Web3 gaming is something that they want to have plugins for and like feature in their app store. And Unity, and, and just as a backdrop here, Unity is one of the two um, most dominant uh, game engines. So all the rendering of the graphics, all of the like physics, all of the motion, or like all of the different aspects of movement within games, all of that is usually controlled by a game engine. And, and Unity is one of the two uh, most dominant uh, game engines that are underpinning you know all games, every single one. Um, or you can develop the graphics yourselves, but like most most developers, most game developers just don't do that these days. So <clears throat> I think the big takeaway here isn't Immutable. I think Immutable is just louder than everybody else. Um, but what it is, is that Unity is recognizing that Web3 Gaming is definitely something that they want to be a part of. Um, and they want to have interface into the developers directly. And so they're going where the developers are, which is all these different chains. Um, so very interesting to see, but I, I'd say ultimately very positive. What What is your, I know we've talked about this before, but in terms of, I know you guys see a whole bunch of different gaming projects. Can you like, I don't know when I, when I think of like the games that I love, it's kind of like the, like the Halo three was kind of like my game or like the call of duties or stuff like that. That's not really what we're talking about here with crypto gaming. Like what are the, what are the models that kind of like excite you guys or like, what are the, some of the stuff that's on kind of like the cutting edge of gaming and crypto? Like, how do you think it looks different? from uh, traditional gaming? The thesis is very simple. Um, once gamers realize that they can actually get something out of playing these games and spending massive amounts of money on them, they will never go back to the old model. And right now we don't have a lot of proof points on our side. We have small scale examples of success, things like pixels, um, you know, obviously like Axie Infinity was not a good proof point. That was just like the, the euthanasia roller coaster for largely Southeast Asian people, so it didn't work out that well, but there is something powerful with being able to play something, being able to have ownership of your game assets and being able to create value. And at the end of the day, not just having the game extract value from you, but building something that has value on chain with the rest of the community and realizing some sort of collective success. And that's the thesis. Um, and, you know, it's taking longer than we would have thought. But by the second half of this year, I think we're going to see a few games starting to prove this model out. And, you know, we're not looking for 100 games to work. We're looking for one. It only takes one. And once you have that success case, everyone is going to copy, paste, iterate towards it. And that's really kind of what grows the top of funnel of crypto at the end of the day. It is the only consumer use case that has enough scale to put a billion people on chain. 
And it's the clearest. It's the clearest thesis that we have for that to happen. I would describe it as the bottom of the first inning where everybody has started to like build these things. They've started to test them. They've started to iterate with them. Um, <clears throat> frankly, like they have pretty wide distribution on the beta uh, betas for these games. And what, what happens is you, you build a game, right? And you get the graphics right. You get the storyline right. You like have this entire world that you've developed. And then you put a bunch of people into the ecosystem and you're like, all right, now go run free and like see what happens. And that's really when game development starts because that's when you start to balance out the game. You start to figure out what the economy needs to look like. You start to figure out like how many of these different attributes, resources, capabilities should I put into the game at the start? How, how should I be doing like my live ops, which is essentially like the re-ups every week, every two weeks of like how many of these things am I going to be distributing? Like I'm, I need to be constantly managing this economy. You know, like some of the most simple games are some of the most successful games just because they have the best live ops operations on the back end. And every two weeks, there's new content and it just keeps people refreshed. It keeps people going. If you beat the game, people stop playing the game. And so you have to keep it refreshed. So like we're in that rebalancing phase right now. So a lot of exciting data, like anecdotally, you know, there's a, we've, we've invested in a number of um, former game executives, game developers, in pre-web three gaming and some of the retention cohorts that they're seeing is like three four five times what they would expect to see uh just because you have imbued value into something that people own and that fact alone and if you can communicate that effectively to the gamers they stick around because they own part of the game and so i i think that's like step one that's like web 2.5 for for gaming what i think web 3 and this is a hypothesis at this point what i think web 3 for gaming actually turns into is is a lot more user generated content and so it's not just like you get to own something it's you get to create something in the game and that just imbues further ownership but it also imbues like your own creativity you like you get to put your own your own swag into it you get to do whatever you want within the confines of the game and like that's the real value of game I, like vance and i built a game prior to framework called hashlates and that was an experiment in and of itself but like back then in 2017 2018 everyone's like oh blockchain's gonna enable games to be interoperable and like i remember getting a question uh when we were going through the process they were like well what if you put like you know a monster on top of tom brady's body and like you run around and it's like no 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 like that. that would ruin the game and you would lose your license immediately so like that makes no sense <laughs> but like that's what people were talking about like this whole interop layer and and sure maybe like if you're a game publisher and you have three related games and the characters are all the same and you want to have interop between those specific games like totally that makes total sense but like the value of blockchain gaming isn't going to be anything that's interop it's going to be ownership and and creation so that, I think that's kind of like the thesis that we're refining our, our previous thesis into. Yeah, there was a guy who he spoke, his name is Josh Rosenthal, and he sort of gives this talk about this. He, he, he spoke at Permissionless, but he's also been on uh, Bankless, you know, a number of times. And he kind of has this analogy of like, imagine you are living in like the dark ages, you know, you're a peasant in kind of medieval times. Imagine just trying to explain to that person how little ownership and how little freedom they have. They're like, what do you mean? Like I wake up, like I go and I, you know, get my hay and I get my food or whatever. Uh, but there'd be no way of saying like, dude, you don't own any of that land. You know, you can't hire people. There's you, it's just very difficult to reframe that reference. And I think that's what that I kind of see that in the gaming side of things as well. It's like, Hey, we're trying to actually give you stuff here. We're trying to give you back some of this value that 
has traditionally just accrued to game makers or, or social media in general, but I think it's a compelling thesis, but I can see how it takes a little while to get there mentally. The theses that we've had that have worked have always been very simple. Like we're going to allow you to own a part of the game. We are going to build financial services on chain. Like the stuff that's like further afield where it's like, we're going to do a social network and like, you're going to own your own post. Maybe you can sell it to somebody else. It's like those things have like generally never worked. It's going to take longer, but like, I don't know. It, it feels like it's starting to work at a very small scale and it gives us hope that this is going to really whipsaw in, in the right direction when it really works. Well, and, and just another analogy, <clears throat> I mean, think about how much value there is in physical real estate, obviously, and you know the, the different slices of ownership, the different ways that you can manage it, the different you know things that you can build on top of it or do with it. But think about how increasingly each successive generation is living their lives in a digital realm. And this may be, I mean, it may be social media, but it may be, you know, in these game ecosystems, it may be in like, I mean, in game ecosystems be like three dimensional, it could be like, yeah, it could be two dimensional and pixelated, it doesn't really matter. But like, you're still spending hours of your life in that ecosystem. And instead of, you know, you being the peasant that's sitting outside the gates, you know, owning your own hay, you actually now get to be an owner in that instance of that game in that digital realm. And there's value in that for Younger generations, that's the only value that they know. I also, the the simplicity point kind of resonates, honestly, Van. Sometimes if you like listen to business podcasts, you would think the way that things happen is you're sitting in a room and you come up with some brilliant strategy and you just do it. It, it, it is just so not how it happens in practice. Usually it's, there is, if there is something cool that you do, it's the result of, someone, someone told us this. Um, they were like, Hey, it's really cool how you guys built a media company backwards because you started with the thing that makes money. And then you reverse engineered the media. And I was like, yeah, we totally thought of that when really it took us three years to realize that what we were building was a media company and we were just trying to make it work. And it sounds all cool to talk on pod, but I, I generally think most strategy actually comes from just executing and tactics and, you know, needing to do something necessity is the mother of invention but totally backwards from how i thought it was going to work the same thing with, with pitches too like if you hear a good pitch you leave the call and you're like all right let's invest if you need to do like diligence well like we do diligence. if you need to do like research and like studying trends and like you know what's the growth rate of this country what's the size of that market like it usually is is not a good investment like the best yeah, things are usually very simple What's the phrase? It's a uh, 10% strategy, a hundred percent execution. Yeah. Right. I've, I'm with you on that. I can that. assure you it wasn't brains that got me here. <laughs> that Somebody just watched margin too. call. <laughs> <laughs> hiring oh, is so kind of the same. It's totally you the same. Know. You know? Yeah. I have to usually on a hiring call in like a last stage or something like Jason and I kind of get looped in at, at the end and we'll be on. And after like two minutes, I have to stop myself from being like, this is a yes for me, or this is a no for me. Like you just get that very, very quickly. I, I think, it, you know, what, what we're all kind of saying is it comes down to clarity and like, can you communicate clarity efficiently? And if it's very clear, it's very simple. It's very obvious. Yeah. And like, 100%. let's bring it back to gaming. Biggest market by far. People who look and feel like crypto natives check games that are coming to market in the second half of the year. And like people are already fading blockchain games with no blockchain games out there. 
Well, there's one. It's called Axie, and it's still kicking. Here's a contrarian prediction. I think Axie comes back. <clears throat> you think Axie comes let, back? Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, <laughs> not, not to their, not to their, not to their old, you know, way of doing things, but let me break it down for you. Very simple. They have a large studio. They have a lot of money. They have experience building games. A, re- a rebrand. I, yeah. A rebrand might be necessary. Yeah. New new coat of paint, whatever you want to call it. Different name, <laughs> but like it's pretty simple in my mind. Like we don't have any Axie. We're not, we don't have any exposure, but like best things are very simple. I've got a, I've got a way dumber, like just stupid pattern matching observation that kind of uh, aligns with that is I feel like in crypto, there's this history of something like makes a big splash, like way earlier than it should in a cycle. And then it comes back like full force next cycle. Like I'll give you an example. It's like uh, crypto kitties was like an NFT project that caused like a ton of hype. And then there was nothing after that. And everyone was like, Oh yeah, NFTs were like kind of a thing, but like look at crypto kitties and now look at NFTs. Even with like the DAO, right? There was like the DAO and it worked and it was like a phenomenal failure and then it just kind of laid there dormant. And Axie has the potential to, that just feels like that to me, you know? Obviously there was something there and now there's not much, but. But using that same analogy, if Axie is CryptoKitties, I'm not saying that CryptoKitties is back in any way, but maybe Web3 Gaming will come back because it's NFTs that's back now. I mean, <clears throat> you, you can think of the analogy in similar ways. I guess you could also say CryptoKitties is Dapper. Dapper has a lot of other things that they built. Um, but, you know, it, I, I actually think the biggest thing is um, anything in crypto that hasn't truly died, like truly died, as long as you're alive and you can make it across market cycles, there is a chance that you come back bigger and, and larger than you were before. I agree with that. I think DYDX actually did that pretty well they initially launched there was a long period where it was just i kind of knew what they were but uh and then suddenly they were back one day so i mean i agree all, with that. all the original primitives of DeFi summer uh, DeFi DeFi summer time uh all of those are, are still the top DeFi protocols oh by the way i do want to give a, a shout out to uh we we use their phrase at the top of this episode but bankless uh, just got reported that they're raising a $35 million VC fund. Love those guys. Uh, Ryan and David are, we, we have a kind of an informal, no partnerships policy at Blockworks. We've just over the years, but they're the one partnership where they like really do what they say they're going to do. They're phenomenal to work with. And I think the world of them. So hope, hope it works out for them. That's, that's great. Hats off to them. They're the best. All right, fellas. I think that's all the time we have, but this was a fun Later. one. Jason, I miss you, buddy. I feel bad about that joke. <laughs> miss you, dude. Hope you're doing well at Denver. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>